Welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. This episode is brought to you by Coda Payments. Game developers building their free-to-play monetization strategy have a daunting task when considering security, payment methods, user experience, and global expansion. I'm here today with Neil Davidson, Executive Chairman at Coda Payments. Neil, how has Coda Payments helped games teams drive greater success? We like to say we help mobile game developers think outside the app when it comes to monetization. That's because outside the app, they can collect payments from their players at half the cost or less of doing so through the app stores. Coder Shop is our global marketplace for game currency and in-game items, trusted by tens of millions of gamers around the world. And developers that want to accept payments outside the app on their own websites can use Coda Pay, which allows them to support hundreds of local payment methods globally with a single integration. Whether our partner leverages Coda Pay, Coda Shop, or any of our other solutions, we offer local market insights, provide live local language customer support, ensure tax compliance, and manage fraud risks. If your listeners are interested in retaining more of the revenue they generate, I hope they'll get in touch with us at Coda. Awesome. Thanks for sharing, Neil. And if you, our listener, are interested in learning more about how Coda Payments solutions can take your game to the next level, head to codapayments.com or check out the details in the show notes. And with that, let's dive into the weekly roundtable. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Devin Becker, here with another Novik Roundtable. And with me, great panelists, as always, we've got Aaron Bush, Tammy Levy, and Sebastian Park. How are you guys doing? I guess Sebastian's been kind of uh, zipping around a little. Yeah, I've done something like eight time zones in nine weeks and learned that Arizona is not a real time zone. They don't do daylight savings time. So they're the smart one. Yeah, I was just going to ask, what have the highlights been of your travels other than Arizona making the right time zone decisions to not have a time zone change? Yeah, I, I, I had, a, had a great time. You know, spent a lot of time actually in Asia and Europe. So, and unfortunately, back and forth. So some of the highlights I would say is saw the, the founder of Dota Buff, Sabina, get married in Mexico City. She's awesome. Their wedding was super cool and, and, and hit all the trappings you would imagine of an esports gaming wedding. But then also saw Korea Blockchain, Korea Fashion Week, Paris Fashion Week, and TwitchCon, as well as esports business. What I will say is that events are hard to run. And I have a healthy appreciation for all the folks in marketing who run these events the best because they're dearly missed <laughs> at a lot of these events. Favorite event? Favorite event? So I, I haven't been to Paris this decade. Like I haven't been to Paris in five, 10 years. And I always forget how little French I know. But I would say my favorite event by far was the Bitcraft LP Summit in Lisbon. They had a lot of awesome people. I was on a panel with Tim Morton from Frost Giant, and I love StarCraft, so it's always a pleasure talking to him and Brendan Mulligan and the stuff that they're doing on the middle. So it was, it was a lot of fun. I got to say, that was certainly the highlight and great fish in Lisbon. Highly recommend Lisbon to anyone who's <laughs> never been. Nice. Awesome. 
Well, hopefully uh, things will calm down for you here and uh, we'll be able to get get on the regular. At least uh, we'll, we'll use this as your touch point, you know, every every four weeks at least. So we've got some uh, great topics today. I think this is actually one of the, like, the less slow weeks maybe we've had in the last few weeks with a lot of earnings information and stuff like that coming out, which is great. So we have some stuff on a lot of sales numbers, reorganizations due to some AI and, and some changes in gaming in general, as well as earnings season, as I just mentioned. And of course, Aaron loves dipping into that and getting the details there. And then we've also got an industry report that I think is pretty good that we're going to dig into quite a bit. So why don't we just uh, jump into the updated sales numbers for October? I think probably some expected winners. Yeah, so there's a couple angles I want to to take with this. But the first comes from, uh, you know, last week we just saw UK box sales. So, you know, specific market, kind of specific bent. But it showed that Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Spider-Man 2, and EA Sports FC 24 are just dominating the top <laughs> three spots. And I'm only highlighting that because, you know, a few weeks ago we predicted that would be the case for a while going into the holiday season. So a pretty easy prediction, but that one is is looking good. Um, also, just as an aside, looking at the sales numbers, one thing I've noticed is what's not there anymore, anywhere, which is Starfield. That one has fallen out pretty fast. So, you know, take that for what you will. Obviously, it's also on Game Pass and such, too. So hard to we're entering that weird hybrid world of how do you track these things? Well, but just calling that out. Second, if you look beyond the unit sales, Roblox is quietly crushing it on on PlayStation right now. As of, I think it was like a week or so ago when the data was was pulled, Roblox was the number two most played game on the platform in terms of daily active users. And according to Circana, Roblox represented about 12% of all time spent playing in in that that time period. So I think that's second to like only Fortnite, I believe. Um, but and I'm not sure if it'll stick there or grow or shrink. I'm, I'm honestly not not sure. Um, but it's a pretty amazing debut for for this for this platform on on PlayStation. And their cross platform ambitions are really clicking in, into into higher gear. And so I'm curious to see what that'll turn into like business results wise going forward. But a really strong early indicator. And then the the last stat I wanted to share. Um, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too, is that US video game content spend is approximately $34.1 billion year to date. That's up 2% from the same year to date time period a year ago, but it's still down 6 to 7% from the same period in 2021. Um, and Obviously, if you factor in inflation on an inflation-adjusted basis, the real sales are actually down from last year. And what I'm struggling to fully wrap my head around is why, like, why are inflation-adjusted video game sales in the U.S. down over the past year, given that this has been like a much bigger year in terms of like hit releases uh, and and such. And, you know, if you look at even just like US GDP, like it had a really strong Q3. It was up like four point something percent. And, you know, maybe that's not a perfect indicator and it won't, it's not going to stay there. But, you know, however you look at it, like the economy is actually stronger than many people 
think, at least in terms of how it's being measured. And there's just been like we've talked this past year on about like how this this year because of COVID delays and such, how just like the slate of game releases this year is the best we've seen in a really long time. Yet spending is down, inflation adjusted. So um, why is that? And I kind of wanted to open that up to the group just to see if there's any broader thoughts or reflections on, you know, where we are in time <laughs> right now uh, with just video game sales big picture. It's a fun topic because the we should first start by saying we have no idea. I hope hope people hope people miss that comment over and over again. But yeah, we're not sure. The macroeconomy is such a weird thing to say on a like the US savings rate is massively down so the GDP is really buoyed by a lot of non-saving spend that's happening in the US. But one thing I noticed a ton as I was traveling Asia and Europe, which I don't think I would get as much if I had just stayed in the States, is just the pure impact of the US dollar relative to the market of everything. One thing that we're probably going to see a lot of as we see left and right, be it left being, I was going to say left and right, east and west between Europe and Asia, is that the yen is 150 to 1 right now. That exchange rate basically means that a lot of the sales numbers that we get converted back into US dollar are going to look very strange and different than anything else. The euro is at like 106, 104 to one. Like some of, some of the like weakest we've seen every other currency, mostly as a function, if people are interested, in the fact that US treasury notes are so high yielding that we're seeing a lot of movement from folks in different currency nodes into the United States. And that's like that exchange ratio is changing. So unless you're the creator of Ozempic and you're Denmark, Everyone else's currency is effectively getting beat up by the U.S. dollar right now. That seems to tell one of the stories as to why we're seeing this, these growth numbers change. The second one, I think you touched upon a bit earlier, Aaron, with regards to Starfield, right? We're entering this like weird spot, mostly in the U.S. We don't see subscription rates as strong outside of the States right now. But in the U.S., we are seeing the shift from over-the-top or even just box sales to more of a subscription-based model. And it may just be that revenues are lagging as a result. We've seen this in the Xbox and Microsoft earning reports. And we just don't know as to whether or not that's a full movement in that direction or if it's just being banked in different ways and it'll reveal itself in different ways. The, the last thing that I will say is that 21 is a really interesting measure. I, I love 21 in part because it may just represent peak spend. Like it's not, it may not be the step ladder that we thought it was, where I was like, we can go to like 36 billion, then we can go to 40. It might just be that that's just about the carrying capacity of the United States in terms of video game spend. And it may not matter how many new age titles there are. In fact, if you're a game developer, it might be worse for you, in part because if there's only $36 billion or $40 billion to be spent on gaming, it's just split 30 different ways. As opposed to if you're the one big hit of 21 or 22, you get to capture all of it. So those are three hypotheses out there for people to think about. And I, I'll expand on, on one of the pieces that you kind of touched on, which again, it's kind of just like a hypothesis, but I think that there's also a piece around the penetration of like different consoles and different gaming systems based on geography. So I think that there's also, you know, we're seeing a ton of game releases, but you know, it's they're in different platforms. You know, there's a lot of movement on the Nintendo side, on the PlayStation side. 
not as much in the Xbox side yet. Also, Xbox moving towards like the subscription model and pushing really to the Game Pass subscription model, as you mentioned. I think like there's there's some dynamics there about like, you know, we would need to look at, you know, the the hit and releases and sales based on platform and market penetration per platform in different geographies to I think to get a better understanding of what are also some of the consumer side dynamics there that are not quite captured just by like big sales numbers. Yeah. The- yeah we did see a Microsoft specifically saying that the that Starfield actually grew their their Game Pass numbers. Yeah, yeah, it definitely definitely did. It was Game Pass's largest catalyst ever. Um, so I would hope so. But yeah, for what it's worth, the number that I I threw out the what was it thirty four point one billion that was just U.S. content spend. So that wasn't global content spend. So probably all the the global elements like currency exchange rates and stuff probably don't apply to that number as much. But yeah, I was just curious, like how much of it really is just like macro influences? And <laughs> is there anything we can gauge from that to like almost like take as a lens to look forward to the next couple of years too? Because if it is consumer spend related, for example, like Sebastian, you noted how savings rates are down. I also looked at like credit card balances, which are way up. And so it's interesting to say like, okay, so credit card spend in and just like consumer debt is higher than it has been in a, in a really long time. Obviously, interest rates are higher <laughs> than they've been as a result of inflation being higher than it's been. And so it's not hard to see how there's just been like a consumer spending squeeze of some type where, where consumers have had to resort to more debt and maybe like through the cracks, you know, gaming has fallen a little bit uh, in terms of the priority list of what people are spending. And it could also too be that just free to play, you know, taking taking market share and therefore giving consumers more flexibility and picking how much they want to spend when they're playing the same amount of time anyways. And I think Again, we don't really know what the right mix of all of these factors are that's leading to this specific number for this specific time period. But it's interesting to think that because I don't know if, again, we don't even know looking forward to, but it's not hard to see how the GDP numbers that we see right now probably aren't sustainable, how the consumer spending, if they're taking on more debt and saving less, how that could result in even more of a squeeze going forward, especially if interest rates remain inflated, inflation stays high to some degree, and it just leads to even more of a squeeze over the next few months or year, however long that, you know, it, it could just be like a flat market for a while, which has, you know, ramifications for other things we'll talk about in this episode too, like new companies coming and trying to steal market share, how big companies are reacting and trying to you know, maybe think less about growing their revenue as much as growing their profits and and things like that. But really, like what we talk about, how companies are changing their cost profiles and all of that, like this is the top of the funnel to, to all of those decisions. And so, yeah, it's just interesting to kind of spend some time talking about this. And I guess, you know, it's an always changing narrative and kind of hard to foresee, but I wish it were stronger than it was, but it's not it's not as strong as it looks is, is kind of my, my final view. Aaron, what's really funny, and this is probably the funniest, funniest hypothesis of the group, which is the other way to look at it 
is that gaming is historically countercyclical. We have seen a lot of trend lines over the last 24 months that gaming is becoming more and more cyclical. And if gaming seemed poor while the economy seemed better, maybe we're back to being countercyclical, baby. Like it's I don't just, buy it. uh, it's one of those things where this could this could be that this could be that. I don't really buy it either. I do think that spend is just changing, and and I am worried overall based on just what we're seeing in the startup markets that people don't understand how to operate businesses in a non-zero interest rate environment, and that learning is going to take a while to change because. As humans, we build heuristics over experience and time, and it takes a very, very disciplined approach to change your priors quickly. If you are an executive who came up in the industry in the last decade, like, I mean, like, there's no way in hell, you know, any world that looks different than the zero interest rate environment. We haven't had a non zero rate interest rate environment since the Xbox 360. So, like, and that was only for a year, right? Like, before that, you'd have to go back to pre-Dreamcast, pre-SNES to see really real interest rates and how their effects on the world were. So, I mean, a couple of questions that like uh, things I'm curious about that you guys might have some opinions on this with one of it, which is like whether or not you think some of these sort of like half-baked releases that have come out that are like have been just kind of fallen on their face, like Redfall, Payday 3, like in some ways Diablo 4, but not really because that, that managed to get the sales it was, I think, going for have any effect on this. And I think a lot of them actually, except for Diablo 4, ironically enough, were ones that, that debut on Game Pass, like Redfall, Starfield, Payday 3, where we have a situation where people maybe not pre-ordering, maybe waiting to see and try it out. Situations like that where it's maybe a little riskier or getting refunds. Now, like Steam refunds are obviously a way, you know, that could, I don't know if the, the sales numbers end up getting adjusted for that or not. Like if people refund after, are those sales numbers still being counted? So that's one question is like whether or not that has any impact, you think, or will have impact going forward, especially pre-orders being such a large part of like a lot of the console market and then these AAA games that are like going for a, like a premium. And the second thing is like whether or not if, if people are loading up on debt and getting situations where like, you know, they don't have the disposable income to just plunk down 60, 70, whatever the retail price ends up being. Do we just see that as more of an opportunity for free to play and shifting towards that model where people just get kind of lured in slowly. They start out with, you know, let's say Diablo 5 was coming out as free to play, like Immortal did. And they're like, oh, well, you know, what? it's fine. I could just try it out. And then they end up addicted and spend maybe probably what they shouldn't. Because obviously people are willing to spend into debt when they're in a casino. There is more than enough behavior similar to that in free to play. So I wonder if that could end up just like taking even more market share away from the the premium purchases, partially because also the premium purchases can't really go up to a price that really justifies the production costs anyways, as we've touched on many times before. So like the, those two things, I guess, are kind of the, the stuff I'm wondering a little bit about if you guys have opinions on. I do think that there's, there's kind of like an element of like free-to-play getting deeper and deeper into just the overall industry. And like it, there's like this, this combination of like free-to-play and subscription, like, doing this push pull like against box sales right like there's you know the the mentality is shifting like that is also shifting on the consumer side so i think that part of it is like for teams and and releases they're not adjusting also that mentality to you know this is like real pressure coming from the consumer side and from the market i think that it's just going to land on like you know, disappointing sales numbers in general. And that's just going to kind of change and and get magnified over releases more and more and more. 
the other thing that um as you were uh talking about just like you know some releases falling flat on sales and whatnot and just like quality one of the things that you know came to mind as well that has been kind of brewing in my mind is we are also at this point where we're on like fourth fifth plus iteration of some franchise instead of you know fresh franchises coming up like there's a few coming here and there but we don't have like we haven't really had like this influx of franchises and like interest new interesting content that you know can drive this like all of a sudden like boom in sales for an interest from the consumer side so i think that there's also a little bit of just like tiredness right like you know how much are you going to play the fourth fifth sixth iteration of a game you might be a super fan, but you're getting down to like a neat more and more and more and more niche part segment of your market in general. So I think like there's also a, a piece to that that I was thinking about that, you know, I don't know if you guys agree with that, but I, I do think either part of it is just like you can only recycle the same franchise so many times before it starts just, you know, being diminishing returns. Unless you're Call of Duty, apparently. <laughs> uh, Tammy, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point that I've heard come up a few times over the last few weeks. Uh, and it, it, for me, it's come up in the question of, hey, what, are, what is a new eSport? Like, we haven't seen a game explode in the community sense to the point where a new eSport has been built since really Fortnite, right? Like, you can say Among Us and Fall Guys might be the other two candidates. But even if you count those two, it's been years, right? And so... It might be that cycles. It might just be it's taking a lot longer. It, it may be that there is no expansion, but I think your point is really well taken where a game like Fortnite did grow the pie. I think unequivocally, it brought more people to become gamers and more things to apply as game content acquisition than we've seen before. Similar to how free-to-play grew the pie. What is the next thing that grows the pie as opposed to the next Coin Master clone? Which will certainly capture a lot of money, but won't grow the pie in the same. I think they're both super important. I think that free-to-play obviously is a tailwind <laughs> that's going to last a very long time and is going to you know, scale engagement probably at a faster rate than spending, especially in harder economic times, but still sets the industry up for good long-term success. But also, like, I think the franchise point, I don't know if I fully disagree with what you're saying, Tammy, but... When I when I look at a bunch of these companies, it is the franchises that are driving growth and are showing to have the most pricing power. Like if you look at Activision, Call of Duty and the ecosystem that they've continued to be able to grow around it has been what's been propelling that business the most. With EA, you know, they're I guess it's EA Sports FC now. Um, that's the franchise that, you know, year after year has been scaling its user base and scaling its spending per per user. I think you can kind of go go down the list. Even we mentioned just like the top selling games of you know of recently, Spider Man Two is crushing it and is going to have really high attach rates for the PS Five. Mario Super Mario Bros Wonder, kind of the same thing. And you still need those franchises to do really well on top of free to play and other things to to grow the pie. But so yeah, I don't know. I, I really do think it is more of just like a macro thing with, with just where we are with consumer spending and. As long as the industry is focused on growing the pie engagement-wise, I think that the spending will eventually come, but it might not be a straight line. And so we just kind of have to 
remember that as we're all building companies and planning costs and all of that kind of thing. Well, it does seem like uh, free to play could be something that, that, as Sebastian was saying, helps grow the pie, depending on like finding new genres and new audiences, right? So there's, it does seem like there's maybe an opportunity where maybe, maybe it is a new franchise, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just a, something that expands out to an audience that is like a broader audience. Like we see Diablo, for example, really trying to push that, right? Trying to avoid the narrowing of the audience because like with Diablo one and two, they narrowed the audience very hardcore. And then they tried to expand that out with three and four and immortal. And like, I'm sure immortal did expand the audience a little bit right into mobile to, to an audience that maybe hadn't played the Diablo games. And so there's definitely a push to do that. And maybe that is how we sort of get around this issue is to just try and find ways to grow the pie with the free to play because people can afford to try something that's free in theory. Right. And, and that becomes an opportunity. Obviously that's big on mobile. And I feel like, Maybe the, the hard part about this is console really not having a great free to play sort of like audience outside of like Fortnite or like Warzone, stuff like that. I mean, there's obviously some big players, but it feels like, you know, it's still kind of a, a premium title sort of ecosystem compared to mobile, which is obviously the exact opposite of that. Or even Steam, which is, is still pretty premium driven. There's not like a lot of great free to play going on on Steam because it's just that sort of like core gamer audience that we like to talk about. And like maybe is that sort of erodes from new like people coming up in age and things like that that we we sort of expand that and get around this i mean i don't know obviously lots of potential for how we deal with this whether it is counter cyclical or not because obviously i don't think people are suddenly going to get out of this debt especially with inflation hasn't really been like completely defeated obviously we're speaking pretty u.s centric right but like a lot of this does affect some of those global numbers and also like i think these earnings correct me if i'm wrong aaron we're, we're mostly accounting for like the upfront sales and not really like any kind of live service sales or, or free-to-play stuff or any of that, right? For the big stat I threw out, the $34 billion, you mean? Yeah. I think that's all spend. So it's not just like upfront box sales, I think. So I think it's pretty pretty complete. Yeah, I think it might be interesting to even like segue this topic to Tammy's topic, <laughs> which has lots of interesting data and stuff too that we can maybe kind of take to talk more about where all of this goes for different parts of the, the market. Yeah. Yeah, we can jump right into that. So yeah, there's uh, a couple of reports that came out in the last week or so focused on Q3. One was from Drake Star, the other one was from Convoy. They're mostly focused on M&A and funding activity across gaming and I will say also gaming adjacent tech. So yeah, we thought it would be interesting to do a quick recap of the reports and dive into some you know possibly speculative like this whole conversation is very speculative right based on their takeaways and what we're seeing in the market and kind of like all these dynamics that we're already discussing one of the things that i found that was interesting is that some news outlets like GameSpeed kind of picked up on the big numbers and you know that's it makes sense and it's like picked up a big number of like gaming m a deal count is down 60 percent year on year but really just doesn't tell the whole story of the reports whatsoever. So if you read the the reports, there's actually more optimism injected into their takeaways. They both came up with, you know, Drake Star was calling out expecting M&A activity to start increasing and steadily increase throughout 2024 based on kind of the dynamics that they're seeing in Convoy, which I thought was overly optimistic, but they were calling out that, you know, gaming funding has normalized to pre-COVID levels. I think that there's a lot more that happens in the in the market to be able to just say, hey, it's it's normalized to before 
COVID, so not quite there, but I do I do think it's like it seems to be stabilizing. So let me just go through like some quick numbers and but then we can keep going on the conversation. Quick beats here were MA activity restarted by some of the biggest strategics after an extended quiet period. So that came from Tencent and Platika and all in there were north of 30 deals announced in the multiple billions of dollars. One side note is that Drake Star's report includes, as I said, kind of like gaming adjacent tech. So, you know, one of the biggest deals that they included in the report was an offer to take a Hoot private. And it was like a close to $2 billion deal. And it's more like a learning games platform. So it's not quite, you know, the just the games industry zoom inversion. On the VC front, you know, there's been about a billion dollar in disclosed deals, north of 180 deals. That's where the, you know, comparing that from Q3 2023 uh, to Q3 2022, that's where the 60% year-on-year decline comes from. But looking at last year, uh, I was looking at like, okay, what happened Q3 of last year? There were some big metaverse Web3 races. So it, I also don't feel like it's like a quite like an apples to apples comparison, right? Like we got Limit Break and Loot Mogul with 2 million, uh, 200 million each. And then Animoca, 100 million. So there's like... Those are huge races, huge numbers that are not quite, you know, I wouldn't say like you can quite compare 2023 to 2022 when you have that in like a single quarter. But all things considered this year, things look very different. VCs are focused on early stage. That is like pretty clear, like 85% of the deals are in the kind of pre-seed to seed stage. So that's, you know, a big shift we were seeing in 2022, a lot more kind of late stage backing, which is, you know, middle, like growth and, and late stage backing. And right now it's super focused on pre-seed to seed. So early funding, smaller, that also means smaller races in general. So, you know, kind of that those dynamics pull the numbers down. And, you know, yes, considered like the biggest races for the quarter were, a total of six were over 50 million with non, only one of them hitting like the $100 million, which was from the, the Matchmasters guys. Second biggest one was from Second Dinner, Marvel Snap. So you always see also like different dynamics there. It's like two free-to-play companies, mobile, but they have live games, proven games, growth, audience. Like they have kind of all of like these, you know, Check, check, check. And really three of the other uh, big races were uh, AI gaming adjacent technology. So you kind of see that that new trend in, and dynamic in the market. And there's not a lot to talk about on like the, the other piece, which would be that they usually cover would be IPOs because that has been pretty much stalled for quite a bit, but that's like across tech. So that's that's the the quick hits there, you know, there's a lot that we can speculate on how 2024 will look different. I've seen, you know, across the industry too, it's very polarizing. I feel like right now you see the very bleak point of view of 
saying, buckle up, you still need to, as a startup and even like bigger companies, right? It's like, you need to be really optimizing for your org structure, profit, et cetera, et cetera. Buckle up, you need to survive 2024. And then there's the other side of the spectrum where I'm hearing like, optimism and it's like, oh, we're going to see an uptick and you just need to have the right angle. Right. So yeah, the first, you know, I just wanted to open it up to, you know, hearing your guys' take on like, especially like these, these two big takes on like where the market might be going and, you know, what do you think we can expect going into 2024? The, the funniest thing about venture is that Venture is different from private equity and other types of investments in that they have different timescales. And oftentimes, when I talk to investors and I talk to operators, the biggest edge I see in people's thinking comes from the ability to properly ascertain what their timescale is. I think it's not a coincidence, by the way, that we have a combination of people who feel bearish about the world and also more investments in pre-seed and seed stage companies. Because seed stage and pre-seed companies, by definition, one would hope, unless people are really messing up that definition, are, co- are bets for not 2024, but for 2026, 2028, 2030, 2032, right? Given that, it makes I think that aligns really well. That, hey, we are seeing more interest and more growth in those sectors. The idea, though, that we should therefore be optimistic about 24 doesn't seem grounded in anything that makes sense to me. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump into this uh, more deeply. Projection, as a rule of thumb, predicting beyond 24 months is, is freaking impossible. Like this is a, a known thing in decision science that making projections beyond two years with our information is speculation. And as long as we couch the speculation with the risk-adjusted mentality that we have, it's a fine thing to do, but it's, it's sort of useless from a being correct perspective. You're always right six months after the fact, right? Like we're, we're very much correct about what happened 2022 in 2023. Given those dynamics as a company, as a startup, as a founder, there are really things that you should consider. The first one is irrespective of how you think the market is going to turn, you should make sure you're alive in 2024, right? And so oftentimes the advice I hear is less binary in that, hey, it's going to be good, or it's going to be bad. At least for me, it's a lot of, hey, if you're the type of person who's really overly optimistic, I will spend more of my time talking to you about profitability, hitting revenue targets, vertical slices, making sure you survive 24. If you're someone who's so bearish that you don't want to do anything, then the conversation inevitably turns to, hey, things are never as bad as they seem. It, things will get better. It's unlikely for interest rates to go that much higher, that much faster than they already have. But the idea that, but there are like these hilarious downstream effects that people don't recognize when they give advice that's misunderstood. Uh, I'll give you one example and I'll turn it over to Aaron and Devin, but people are projecting that interest rates will drop precipitously in 2024. Like go to like back to like zero interest rate environments. I've heard this prediction. And when I hear people talking about this, I let them know that I hope to God that does not happen. If interest rates if the Fed reduces interest rates to 0%, that means something's massively screwed up. Like we're in like a 08 or 9 or 01 type of recession because the only way the Fed reduces interest rates that precipitously would be if the world economy is screwed, 
right? And so it's fun to hear people have these projections that seem optimistic, but know that downstream, we should just assume, hey, the best assumptions that we need to be in stable state. Make sure you survive stable state or worse if you're a startup. And then adjust accordingly. And if you're in venture, you get to think and dream about the 10-year outcomes. And you get to be optimistic because, yes, there will still be games in 10 years. And the pie hopefully will have doubled or 10x. But either way, we're going to see companies with different timescales. Yeah, I think that's well said. And I think the bull case, too, for there being some type of rebound in the numbers that these reports are showing, like M&A, IPOs, it's not that far-fetched in the sense that, like, well, if you basically have no IPOs, like, you can really only go up from that. So it's not, like, a crazy hard prediction to, to make that case. So, yeah, sometime, sometime upcoming in the next year or two around then, you'll see more IPOs because, duh, like, there's, there have been none. M&A obviously is a bit trickier because there's so many tiers and meanings to what that could be. And yeah, maybe you see other large companies, those that like have a ton of cash and have like the balance sheets to be able to make large deals. They continue to build out their ecosystems. In the same way that we saw with Xbox and Activision. Like I don't think that's crazy. And the public market with those companies is generally pretty, you know, pretty wise in terms of like getting those prices right day to day. But I think when it comes to not the companies that are already public, but more like the venture companies going public or getting acquired, it's probably important to just recognize where we are, especially in like late state, late stage venture in the cycle. And I'm not super involved in that day to day myself. Maybe Sebastian will have some some extra thoughts here on top of what I'll say. But uh, clearly, like venture funds and gaming, they're not on average, not raising as much money right now as they used to. Valuations still, compared to a couple of years ago, are down a lot, which doesn't make as big of a deal for seed stage because you're starting from ground zero. But when you're a larger company trying to raise more money, it means you know more down rounds or just restructured rounds of some type, which are less compelling. And maybe it forces those companies to think more about their profitability, limit their burn rates, and just ride out a like a harder economic time without making some big drastic transaction type of type of change and i i call this out because it's important in the sense that the health of the late stage venture market is the step before you get to the MA that drives these metrics or and the ipos too right and so you really need a healthy late stage market to to then kind of be the precursor, I think, to a healthy IPO market and M&A market. And saying that in 2024, at least early 2024, that you know, M&A is going to turn around, IPOs are going to turn around, that seems wrong to me, or at least because it's very early. I don't know what's going to happen a year from now in late 24 or 25. Maybe then you can start talking more realistically about it. But uh, yeah, I, I kind of have a feeling it'll be more of the same for a while. And we'll always see exceptions. There'll be wacky deals that come out of nowhere. Who knows what, you know, like a Savvy Games will do or what a Sony could do or something like that. But yeah, I I would slow down the optimism a little bit. But I'm curious on the that late stage venture part, Sebastian. What, do you agree with that or do you have any can I, added can I Can I jump in before, oh, before yes, the, yes. the more knowledgeable person <laughs> on the on the late stage? I do think like that. That's a huge point uh, that you just made, Aaron. I think that 
the downstream effects of the the late stage funding they're not getting taken into account into a lot of this these reports and i think that part of it it also starts on like a lot of the companies that would be looking for kind of late stage funding did you know big rounds big races at huge valuations like very generous a couple of years ago right like it was the boom of 20 like late 2021 and like early 2022 or some, somewhere around that time but you know a couple of years ago in the you know hundreds of of millions of dollars so they have deep pockets but that money can go very quickly if not if, like if they're not good operators right like if you're not a good operator or you have like a different thesis and you do not adjust your operations to like the new world like that's going to you know get depleted very quickly and i think that those downstream effects of you know what happens to those companies that raise like these huge rounds at huge valuations like that's going to have a much much bigger impact in um 2024 2025 26 even than like a lot of like the you know as as Sebastian was saying like the early races, like that's, that's a different timescale. I think that the, really the impact on like the next couple of years is going to be kind of those, that late stage. Um, I do think like you, you made a super good point there. I, Aaron, I think your, your point about the fact that if, you, if, if it's in November, because we're recording November 1st, so we're in November of 2023. I think it's fair to say that we only have up to go from here <laughs> for 2024, right? So I, I do love projections like that. It's one of the things I see a lot on at conferences where people make statements that are just factually true and people just nod without thinking about the implications of it. I will say that there is a bearish take on M&A occurring, which is a lot of people actually do enjoy going on their own. They like building their products. They still have solid revenue streams, but it may not make sense for the people to continue to run it. And in a bare environment where you can't receive more funding to continue to grow your business, you become a stable state business, you start to see a lot more M&A just purely as a function of you have now a mom and pop business, right? Lifestyle business, as they say. A very lucrative lifestyle business. And I think gaming is going to see a lot of really interesting things happening over the next few years on that point. We haven't seen a venture-style class of businesses prior in gaming. They were typically not venture. They're more publishing. They're more relational. Do these things make sense to keep operating? Are the founder quality that we've seen who want to be world builders, want to continue to operate businesses that do a few million of ARR? Uh, I don't know is the honest answer. And I don't think anyone knows, but I do see a world. And I think there's a very strong possibility that instead of raising money, you might just want to call it quits. Not quits in a bad way. You'll still the team will all make money, but if you have an option between raising $10 million at down round off of your massive valuation or selling it that still clears your preference stack such that everyone gets some money and you have a few years of working with a larger publisher or studio before you move on, I think we're going to see a lot more of the latter. I think we're going to see a lot of people taking that step. And, and that is a type of M&A we'll start seeing. Uh, uh, Tammy's point with regards to these crazy valuations I have no insight into their burn rates. So I really don't know like when they're going to come to market, right? There is a version of this where I have seen studios raise a ton of money and immediately 
try to burn it in 18 months. And this was one of the big mistakes I saw among my colleagues in gaming venture the past few years is that they didn't set expectation as to what the team ought to do. A AAA game dev cycle, even if you're in Korea or China, where they work 200 hours a week somehow, is still you know, four years. Like four years is fast. Like four years is super fast, right? The typical SaaS development cycle is 18 months, right? And so if you had made a bunch of investments into people who are thinking that they're building businesses in the same mental model as a SaaS business where you raise after a year and a half, you're going to be in a lot of hurt right now because probably after your initial large tens of millions of dollars raise, you only have a vertical slice at this point. Right, you only have a vertical slice, and you're really reliant on people having sunk cost fallacy. You're re- really reliant on people doing a variety of different things to fund you. So I would I would push on the idea that those companies are late stage. In my mental model, late stage is not a function of valuation. Late stage is more of a function of your company style and type. And those companies, I think, are the ones that are making revenue, building product, doing interesting things. We're going to see a lot of death and probably acquisitions of the companies that are really high valuation early stage companies. And then in terms of late stage market itself, we'll see the fluctuations as a function of whether people want to continue to operate as just, you know, lifestyle and interesting businesses that are worth tens of millions of dollars to millions of ARR. These are not bad businesses. They're actually, we've considered amazing businesses 10 years ago, but they're not venture, right? They're not venture scale businesses. And I think that is the question as to do those companies go the M&A route? Do they go the additional funding route? Or do they go the, hey, let's lay people off and go do this again? Which for those of you who are new to gaming, is what game companies have always done. <laughs> They've always hired a ton to build large things and then laid people off when the, when the cycle goes south. Yeah, the last thing I'll say, I know we got to move on to other topics. I just want to call out the paradox between there being still, however you slice and dice what you foresee with late stage venture and all that, there still is a ton of entrepreneurial activity. Like in the past, you know, two, three years, you know, it's like peak gaming entrepreneur ship, at least that we've seen so far. But I also just want to, you know, pair that with the data that we were talking about earlier in the episode about like how the market's flat <laughs> in a lot of ways. And so I think at some point, like those two, those two things don't go hand in hand to the same extremes that we're seeing right now. So it'll just be interesting to see, can this entrepreneurship grow this market and in, <laughs> in more new ways that we haven't seen? Or it's just going to be more of a red ocean where these companies kind of have to compete with everyone else, including all of the other companies out there. And that's going to have ripple effects for looking beyond just 2024, but like how venture markets and M&A and IPOs and all that stuff play out even further into the future. So I would just be paying attention <laughs> to kind of the two sides of, of that coin there. Yeah. And I'll, I'll add my, my, my final note on this too, which is I do... I do think that there's there's a couple of pieces. One, the you know a lot of startups. What Sebastian was saying is like, hey, you know, some companies might decide to just go under or you know get you know acquired. I do think that there's you know this you know headline that you also see are people saying like, oh, a lot of companies, a lot of startups will die. That happens, right? Like that that's going to happen. That's that's the definition of a startup. So I think it's also like trying to like, you know, highlight something. It's just like, it's part of the cycle. And when you, when you're running a startup, joining a startup, funding a startup, you're, 
inherently taking that risk that, you know, more likely than not, it will die. So that's just part of the cycle in terms of how, you know, the, the VC funding works and how startups work and operate. And the other pieces, I do, I do feel optimistic, at least from, from my point of view, you know, with all of the funding activity and all like the, the, you know, entrepreneurial activity right now in games and focusing games is, you know, we have a very crowded market. We're trying to solve for, you know, distribution, finding efficiencies. And I think that, you know, the fact that we are seeing activity in, you know, more startups pop up and try to figure out these these challenges that we're seeing as an industry as a as a you know just overall person like observing the 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 gaming industry and where can we go that gives me hope because it means that you know we're working towards like finding that that growing that pie finding more players finding efficiencies coming up with a new creative product so Kind of like that's the other flip side of this conversation. I'm just like, I'm hopeful, right? That that we are putting that creative energy towards like solving these challenges, not only like being like, ah, it's so hard. Well, in terms of finding efficiencies, we do have at least some interesting reorganizations happening. Like besides just the MA, obviously, like companies that did acquire having to reorganize now internally and some, some interesting stuff there, Sebastian. This may not be the most human-centric statement, but most companies and most business leaders I've met often use opportunities of strife to reorg to fit the vision of their company. Meaning it's just a good moment in time, as you know, that there's a lot of movement in the market to take a step back and be like, hey, what does the company look like in the next two, five, 10 years? Try to have a sense of what your guiding principles are and then reorg as risk. Even though we see a lot of hype around AI, and maybe not as many results quite yet in terms of what AI has applicably done. Behind the scenes, especially when it comes to QA, operations, game development, product development, AI is really taking over a lot of the nuts and bolts of a lot of our businesses. As a result, we're seeing a lot of reorgs happen. We started to see this, I think, internally from companies that I'm involved with, both personally and, and through Infinite Canvas and BitCraft, but also now we're starting to see it at publicly traded companies as well. And so I think that's been really a ton of fun to see and change, which is that Microsoft is doing a reorg around their gaming division. There's a great piece from The Verge that covers a bit of it and also just read it in their, in their reports. But a lot of this reorg is really to make sure that the executive pool is ready to take on a lot more of the challenges and the deltas of AI there will probably be fewer people doing things than there were previously. And AI also presents an interesting challenge in terms of how the job work looks like in general. Here's a fun example. Infinite Canvas is hiring an art director, art lead person right now, but it is the weirdest art director, JD, I've been trying to write for in my, my career, in part because <laughs> they're not going to be responsible for any artists. Like, it's like the weirdest role in that, like, hey, actually, we need an art director to make sure that the direction in which the prompts are generating art assets are consistent with a, uh, of artistic vision that they have. That is such a strange thing to me. I don't know if it's strange to other people, but like, how do you write JD? It's like, hey, we need you to be an art director, art lead, without having a team of artists report to you. What does that mean? Like, you are now uh, effectively a manager, but also an IC. 
Like, how does that change? And so we are starting to see those reorgs as people start thinking about the different applications of AI inside of their ecosystems. Yeah, I'll just add, I mean, with Xbox too, this is probably the first of like 20 reorgs that we're going to see see there. It's not even just strife in the market or just, you know, innovative change in technologies people use. That's good. That's definitely a big part of it. And we'll, you'll see that everywhere. But with these big companies too, uh, especially with Xbox changing new business models, making tons of acquisitions, trying to figure out how to even like run all of these pieces together, uh, especially when there's executive turnover and, and parts, that also presents an opportunity for, for lots of change as well. And as we see with a lot of other big companies, it's just you see an executive game of musical chairs happen pretty, pretty frequently, and that becomes the norm at some point. But I guess when you see it more broadly, even beyond these big companies, that, that kind of points to something more interesting. Yeah, they also have to deal with the, what, 13,000 people of Activision Blizzard who are coming on board and, and the interaction. I will say people sometimes think that executive hiring and executive you know, musical chairs is a weird thing, but it actually is based on a Bayesian updating principle that I think people doesn't do it, which is that if someone has won $10,000 playing $1, $2 poker, there's a chance that they're very lucky, but there's probably like very little chance that they're awful at the game of poker. And the flip side being that if they've lost $10,000 playing $1, $2 poker, there's a chance they got very unlucky, but there's like no chance they're good. And I think one of the things that we see a lot in executive reshuffling is, hey, like we know what people's strengths and weaknesses are. We've seen what they've done in this like two-year, four-year time period. There's a chance that they, if they've returned infinite, then obviously we can just continue to assume they're good. But if they've returned less than what we expected, then we should have some turnover, if only because there are other people to put into the spots who may have a chance of being infinitely good. Do you think it's also reflective of like shifting priorities as well? Because like, for example, uh, Microsoft obviously is not nor- like technically a game company, right? They, they were more kind of an enterprise software company. And obviously they, they built up the whole Xbox gaming empire. But then they're like acquiring more and more game companies that are becoming part of their organism. And like one of the things I noticed, for example, in that the article was them trying to work a little more closely with Bethesda, with ZeniMax, stuff like that. Like, obviously, like they, they pinned a lot of uh, potential on Starfield, right? Where it was like, this was, this was the big hype moment. This was the big push for Game Pass. And those kind of situations where they're like, hey, we spent a lot of money acquiring this company so we could have this sort of exclusivity. We, we, we want to make sure that this is going to work out for us long-term. Obviously, it did to some extent. Like, does this, like, these sort of reorganizations also indicate these sorts of things around shifting priorities? Do they go, okay, we want to put more money into this, but we also want to put, like, the right person that we've seen in charge of this? And then you have other people, too, like, leaving as part of that, like Bobby Kotick, that then needs to be replaced. But now he's being replaced as part of a bigger organism rather than replaced as head of the whole thing. So, like, that, especially in a company like Microsoft, like, does this indicate any kind of shifting priorities or is it more just like, let's fill in the gaps and the holes that we've sort of like realized exist as we go? For sure it does. Having a business model trans- transition as big as what Xbox is trying to do, that's an organization-wide effort where you have to realign, you know, it's like turning a massive ship. Like you have to realign everyone kind of slowly to be pointed in a new direction. But, you know, like the captains you have on board to, to kind of lead that transition, it's really important to have that figured out. Um, and yeah, I mean, absorbing a $60, 70000000000 billion company, like that, that's just hard. <laughs> like, you know, there's a lot of details in that. And so 
especially doing that on top of kind of the business model transition, making those things gel together. That's going to be hard. So of course there comes with, you know, leadership changes and, and such, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. Kind of my, one of my themes for earning season, what I've seen so far is just that things are not always as they seem, meaning that what we see with Xbox and Microsoft right now is that, you know, this is the last view in the numbers of the kind of the pre Activision blizzard um, merger here. And so, you know, you see hardware sales are down, content services grew 13%. Um, Game sales as a whole grew 9%. Like, you know, pretty good. Hardware is still very much lagging. Xbox is in a difficult spot. None of that's new. And much of that content and service sales is because of the Starfield impact this past quarter. Individual game sales plus the Game Pass transition. And we know that um, Game Pass is a big, big driver for, for the, the business right now. Um, and so, you know, starting next quarter, we'll probably see it'll be like 40 something percent growth. So the numbers are just not what they seem. And even like beneath that, some of like you kind of tear down some of the business direction. I have a feeling a lot of it could change. Like we've talked a lot about like, you know, is Game Pass really a sustainable strategy? And where is that ultimately going to go? We don't really know. But I think it's safe to say that where we are right now, especially kind of compared to some of the discussion from last week, where you know, historically, they've missed sales estimates and things like that. They're just going to be trying things out and like how they window games and how they have changed pricing tiers, all of these things. So I think it's going to be a work in progress for a while to figure out their footing on top of all the technological changes too, like AI, whatever that means for studios, etc. So things are not what they seem there. And that has a big impact on the people side of it, too. The second company where things are not as they seem potentially is Ubisoft. And, you know, that has other leadership discussions that we could say for another day that we've hit on previously. But I guess to kind of start on this, there are always people on Twitter or X who, as soon as earnings releases uh, happen, they just kind of regurgitate the press releases online and you know they get like hundreds of likes and retweets and it's sort of like the narrative that gets thrown out from just pulling like the top of these press releases is the narrative that people kind of run with and think about and i think in this case what was put out is 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 wrong and so the what was regurgitated is that you know ubisoft is back you know bookings are up 17 percent. assassin's creed mirage performed pretty well the back catalog bookings were up 37 percent. you know rainbow six siege did well other assassin's creed games sold well their non-ifrs operating income which is like the international equivalent of non-gap just to get technical they're showing you know five percent margin on that basis and it's not totally wrong like the growth is good and it's good to see operating income slowly shrink down. They have better margins. But when you regurgitate the press release or just look at what Ubisoft wants to highlight for you, you're going to miss out on some crucial details. So there are actually some like really important things that, that I noted that just no one was talking about. One, their big Star Wars Outlaws game got delayed. And so that's just going to have an impact on numbers for the rest of the year. Two... The non-IFRS operating income view that is just like blasted front and center on everything is so stupid right now. Like it makes no sense not to get too technical, but it basically just means management can decide what to measure and profitability. And in this case, 
they're kind of highlighting turning around profitability. It's working. But if you actually look like beneath what they're saying, earnings per share is negative. They're still burning a ton of cash. So like what's going on to make these views different? And one, what what you see is that they have $450 million in in-house software-related production that's capitalized, but only half of it is, you know, put on their income statement as an actual cost. And, and so, you know, just imagine like any company, you put all this like development work in, but you're only counting half of it towards what everyone is viewing as your profitability. So that's just one thing that was a little weird. Second, they ended up, you know, their cash shrunk, they grew their debt, you know, whatever, it's kind of manageable, but all that interest expense is, you know, it adds to the burden too, but they're not always counting it in every view. But lastly, their share count is up 20% year over year. And I have not heard one utterance of this. Their bookings growth was up 17%. And everyone's, you know, hailing the comeback of Ubisoft. But if you look at their sales bookings per share, it's actually down, um, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. And so, again, not everything is as it seems. And part of that is just a call to like, please just pay attention. Like journalists, people on X, just everywhere. Like before just regurgitating what you hear, like just do a little bit of work. But the second thing to this is just that in times of change and in times where like economic situations are harder and it has impacts on company situations being harder, often there are a bunch of these companies that sort of change the way they measure or change kind of the way that they broadcast to you and what they want to highlight to make it not seem as bad as it is. And so this is like, that's a a case with Ubisoft right now. And it might be the case with others going forward this quarter into the next few quarters too. So anyway, just a call to do, do your homework a little bit. It's not all as it seems. Aaron, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard you say. (laughs) <laughs> asking someone to do their homework please <laughs> like do 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 actually read the releases it, it is j- just segue off of this a bit because i think it's super important that is an edge that i think aaron you have that like a lot of people don't right which is that they make analysis not based on reading like reading is really hard sometimes you just gotta read and read and read and consume content and it is so funny to hear that delta the flip side though by the way from the company perspective is it it sort of sucks when you have these like long timescales, but you're like reliant on quarterly reports. That sucks for them too. And so I totally understand why people are switching their announcement things. It's one of the reasons why a lot of the like publicly traded token blockchain companies make no sense in a lot of ways. It's because like they have the same earning cycle issues as publicly traded companies. And no one likes that. Like publicly traded companies don't like that. Reading between the lines is really hard. And I think it's partly why talking to someone like you is so valuable. It's because you can be like, hey, here's the stuff that happened the last seven quarters. Here is the stuff that you see that's been changing. And it really helps shift the narrative away from what very smart people are trying to get you to take away from their press release. Yeah, and it's never about any one quarter. That's not even what I'm trying to say. Like, I don't even, like, I care about the long term. The companies care about the long term. We should be looking at all of these as like stepping stones to just gauge what's going on. And, you know, whatever the specific number is in one quarter doesn't matter. But man, yeah, I mean, hopefully that's a value Novik can add (laughs) a little bit beyond just the normal journalism reporting out there. But I have a feeling this will be a recurring theme as we, you know, over the next few months, at least. 
I would short the idea that anyone is going to start reading Aaron. I'm just like, <laughs> like there's there no are way. a lot of people that care though. Like there are a lot of people that that can. And I even think that a lot of like a lot of it is it's not even that people can't do homework as much as it is just like the state of journalism or the state of just like how you get engagement on Twitter and all of these platforms through clickbait and just how like those ad driven models like that has sort of like put like a weird lens on how people even look at these things doesn't really make sense but it's the way it is the other funny thing too is like uh, I find when you read these like consecutively like each quarter you start to notice like the patterns in the way that they spin stuff or the way that they're like operating the business and kind of reading between the lines. And it's, it still cracks me up to this day. Like, and I, I mentioned this many times as we've discussed Ubisoft earnings is that they're still calling out rainbow six siege every quarter yeah. yet. They're not like really capitalizing on live service games as a company yet. They're they're like eight year old game is still help carrying them. And they're still like, well, we, we made another Assassin's Creed sequel. It's like, yeah, great. But like how long, as a company, can you survive off that? Your other franchises did not do well. Watch Dogs eventually, unfortunately, died. You know, Far Cry has kind of been just like not doing the greatest. I mean, it's doing okay, but like I wouldn't bet the company's future on that franchise, right? And it's like then there are like attempts at a, trying to push out the other live service games, like X Defiant, ended up like indefinitely postponed. Now Skull and Bones is like postponed i think till probably the end of time i guess at this point like i don't know if they're actually going to release it or if it's just kind of like a running joke at the company and then like you know the other ones that tried to attempt it like uh rainbow six extermination that was kind of like a well let's just kick this out the door and try and get it going sort of thing didn't obviously do well but then there are other sort of franchises that actually were doing kind of well like the division they're they're still trying to figure out how to capitalize on where they're trying to like build these other games like homelands or like the mobile game to capitalize on that, but they haven't like quite figured it out yet. Like I see it when, you know, I got to play these betas and stuff where it's like, they've got like some cool ideas, but they haven't really figured out how to build a live service game great yet. And like, they kind of realized, like relied on, I think on massive to, to make the original division games work. <laughs> it's just like, they're in a weird spot as a company where they're just still kind of running off this triple a cycle and, and trying to do, as you guys said, the quarterly, sort of updates it's kind of hard when you're just like well guys don't worry we got another assassin's creed coming out so don't worry about this quarter but rainbow six did fine you know it's there's in such a weird place as a company that i I find it like i feel like they kind of just needed to get it together a little bit and and figure that out because there's they're constantly postponing stuff not getting stuff released not really kind of nailing the things they need to nail and then you've got games like for honor that are like on year seven or eight also and never get mentioned in there because they're not really doing much for the company. I mean, I think it's great that the game's still running, but it's clearly like they're just, they're just not figuring it out. And obviously rainbow six was like a great game and that makes it kind of hard to replicate that. But I feel like the division also did quite well and there's, there's something there they could continue, but it's like, they haven't done anything with that game. Like the division two, since the warlords of New York expansion, which was like what, two years ago, maybe at this point. And so it's like, obviously they're, you know, they're developing stuff. They have division three kind of stuff and and other things, but it's just, I don't know. I like, I hate to see it because like they, they could be doing, I think a lot better. And like, as you said, Aaron, they're kind of like hiding it behind these things are doing well. Their Assassin's Creed came out, like kind of look over here while we're like still trying to figure out what we're doing as a company and, and hoping other companies like Tencent kind of help us stay alive. 
yeah, last thing I'll say is that I, I did call a market bottom on Ubisoft like a quarter ago, and I'll still I'll still stand by it. I think that, you know, even though there are things to work through, it's just been they were just obliterated. <laughs> and, you know, any good news can, you know, take the company up a level. But to me, like, it's actually pretty simple. They're just they just need to make more good games around their best franchises, be a little bit better at live ops. And then just run a lot more efficiently. And that efficiency piece is really like the biggest part where it just takes some courage from management to make hard decisions. Um, And it's tough, but it's not it's kind of slowly happening instead of quickly happening. And maybe that's okay in the long run, but that's kind of the Ubisoft story in a nutshell. And it's not going to be just them, um, but. There, I was gonna say your your three points. I think it's just like it's a it's a beautiful recap of like what pretty much everyone needs to focus on right now. Yeah, I think so. And some are in better positions than others as a starting point. Um, but but yeah, Ubisoft and Xbox are always kind of at the beginning of earnings season, and so we'll see what patterns persist or not going forward, and really probably just get a pulse for. 2024 also just from what all of these these companies are saying kind of help inform our view for future conversations. Yeah, definitely. I think at 2024 like as you guys have said obviously, you know, looking even 2 years out is is hard as Sebastian mentioned, but I think we have a pretty interesting 2024 ahead of us given the sort of state of everything at the moment that we've kind of gone over the last year, the ups and the downs like that. You know, some of those ups could continue forward, some of those downs could definitely get worse. I look forward to the earnings season and, and some more of your insights, Aaron, as well, and, and sort of the, as Sebastian said, your ability to read, but also between the lines, not just the lines they give you. So I think we'll have to dig into a lot more of that, as you said, as those start to come out. But uh, it's just Q3. So obviously we got Q4 as well. And then 2024, lots of good stuff ahead. Hopefully good stuff ahead, not bad stuff. You know, there's obviously still a future for games here for quite some time. I don't think we're going to see the whole industry implode anytime soon, unless something massive happens. So uh, lots of exciting stuff to talk about going forward. But uh, definitely, I think a great conversation today around a lot of the the business details that I think we're kind of looking back on 2023 as things sort of like gel around a lot of the shifts since especially COVID. So I think uh, those sort of narratives are going to build into uh, Q4 should be pretty interesting. But I want to thank everyone, of course, for listening to, I think, a very insightful conversation today. And, uh, and of course, the panelists for bringing that. So definitely appreciate it. Make sure to, of course, if you're not already, subscribe to the newsletter because lots of great stuff continuing to come out of there to the point where good luck staying on top of that reading. As Sebastian mentioned, maybe that's time to, to use some AI to help you with that or something. But uh, lots, of, lots of good stuff coming out. So make sure to check that out, of course, uh, as well as all the other content we have on the, the podcast, all the interviews. Like we've been also putting out a ton of interviews, lots of great stuff. So Make sure you're checking all that out. But in the meantime, as far as the roundtable is concerned, thanks for tuning in. And of course, enjoy your weekend and we'll catch you guys next week. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, 
make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.